Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church. I'm Connie. And I'm Danny. And as God is transforming the seasons into this beautiful fall moment, God is also seeking to transform our hearts and lives through the celebration of worship. We're glad that you've joined us. Come on in. The first lesson for the day comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Listen now. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conscience, as my ancestors did. When I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night, recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that lived first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and love and of self-discipline. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading, Vicki alluded to in her children's moment, is taken from John 15. We are reading just verses 9 through 13. Listen for the word of the Lord. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Captain Ryan Kelly, 36, Denver, Colorado, an email to his mother from Camp Buring, Kuwait, December 2003. Mom, the worst thing here is not the searing heat or the cold nights, it's the waiting waiting for the wind to quit blowing and the sand to quit grinding against your skin, waiting for a moment of privacy in a tent packed with 70 other men, in a camp packed with 700 other tents, in a base packed with 15,000 soldiers, all looking for a clean place to go to the bathroom, waiting for the bone-rattling coughs from dust finer than powdered sugar to stop attacking the lungs, waiting for the generals to order the battalion to move north toward Tikrit, where others, Iraqis, are also waiting, waiting for us. A quick look around my tent, Mom, will show you who is fighting this war. There's Ed, a 58-year-old grandfather from Delaware. He never complains about his age, but his body does, in aches and creaks, 
and in the slowness of his movements on late nights in cold mornings. There's Lyndon, a 31-year-old ex-Navy man from Trinidad who speaks every word with a smile. His grandfather owned an animal farm and lived next to his grandmother who owned an adjacent cocoa field. They met as children. There's Sergeant Lillian, a single mother who left her five-year-old daughter at home with a frail and aging mother because nobody else was there to help. There's Melissa and Mike, two sergeants who got married inside the Fort Dix Chapel a month before we deployed. So in love, yet forbidden because of fraternization policies, even to hold hands in front of other soldiers. But if you watch them closely, Mom, you can catch them stealing secret glances at each other. Sometimes I'll see them sitting together on a box of bottled water, tenderly sharing a lunch. They are so focused on each other that the world seems to dissolve around them. If they were on a picnic in Sheep Meadow in Central Park instead of here, surrounded by sand and war machines, it would be the same. War's a heck of a way to spend your honeymoon. There's Sergeant First Class Ernesto, 38, a professional soldier whose father owns a coffee plantation in Puerto Rico and whose four-year-old daughter cries when he calls. There's Noah, a 23-year-old motocross stuntman who wears his hair on the ragged edge of Army regulations. He's been asking me for months to let him ship his motorcycle to the desert. I keep telling him no. There's Chief Warrant Officer Jerry, the line dog of aviation maintenance, whose father was wounded in World War II a month after he arrived in combat. On D-Day, a grenade popped up from behind a hedge grove near a Normandy beach and spewed burning white phosphorus all over his body, consigning the man to a cane and special shoes for the rest of his life. Jerry lives out on the flight line, going from aircraft to aircraft with his odd bag of tools, like a doctor making house calls He works so hard that I often have to order him to take a day off. There's Martina, 22, a jet black haired girl who fled Macedonia with her family to escape the genocide of the civil war in Bosnia. She's not even a U.S. citizen, just a foreigner fighting for a foreign country on foreign soil for a foreign cause. She has become one of my best soldiers. There's Bill, we call him Wild Bill, a 23-year-old kid from Jersey with a strong chin and a James Dean-like grin. The week before we deployed, he roared up in front of the barracks and beamed at me from behind the wheel of a gleaming white monster truck that he bought for $1,500. Three days later, he drove it into the heart of Amish country where where the transmission clanked and clattered to a stop. He drank beer all night at some stranger's house and in the morning sold in the truck. The kicker is he made it back to post in time for formation. There's Top, my first sergeant, my no-nonsense right-hand man. He's my counsel, my confidant, my friend. He's the top enlisted man in this company with 28 years in the Army and would snap his back and anyone else's, for that matter, for any one of our men. And on and on and on. I hope you are doing well, Mom. I'm doing my best for them, for me, for you. I hope it's good enough. So I wanted to just lift up 
in this letter from one soldier at one point in time in the history of our armed services to let us know that our armed forces are filled with a variety of amazing individuals. Men, women, crazy, not crazy, excited, not so excited. But all of them, no matter what they do, whether in combat or not, chose to join their particular branch at their particular time. Maybe it was in response to something that had happened to the world or this nation. Perhaps they had a sense of calling to defend and participate in the military of this country. Maybe they were a part of generational lineage who had also served in a variety of ways and a variety of places. For whatever reason, today we celebrate those veterans and we give them our thanks. Well, so what then is our Christian understanding or do we have anything that we as Christians can learn from the military? I think so. I think so. Let's start first with our 2 Timothy passage. 1, 3 through 7. If we know this is Paul's letter to Timothy, and this comprises a section of the New Testament of who we credit Paul with writing called the pastoral letters. It's 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. Why do we call them the pastoral letters? Because they outline many ways that Paul was starting to organize the early church. There's some organizational models and structures here, including bishops and elders and deacons and other ways and defining those job descriptions. And as Paul is starting to wind up his career, he is writing to one of his protégés, Timothy. And so in the very beginning, he says, you weren't given a spirit of cowardice, but of love, of power, and of self-control. As we look at our veterans today, I think we can learn from them many things. Let's take first power. That's the big one. That's the good one. I think often we have resigned ourselves in our culture to being Sunday-only Christians or, at best, on church grounds, only Christians. Because it's safer, we don't want to be seen as those aggressive Bible thumpers that are going out and smacking everybody down with what we understand as the Word of God and saying, I'm in, you're out. <laughs> but think about it. If the military only existed in an intellectual or even an academic sense, if in every branch of the military they studied war, they studied logistics, they studied religions and cultures around the world. But what if they just did that but never acted on anything that they learned? We'd all be in trouble. 
In the same way with our Christian journey as well. We as Presbyterians are good thinkers. And it's very tempting for us to keep that in our minds and in our hearts, but to leave it in the door as we head out back into our world as if this church and our world were separate, as if we had cubbies in the narthex with everybody's name on it, that you leave your faith, maybe it grew a little bit in that day, in that moment, in that worship, in that service, in that Bible study, in that men's breakfast, in that opportunity to serve, but you leave it there, you go out, and then we pick it back up again like a name tag. But if we never act or live on what we have been thinking, knowing, experiencing, studying, gleaning from our relationship with Christ, we are in danger of the absurdity of the military just being an academic institution. If we aren't living, if we aren't acting, if we aren't sharing what we know about the grace and love and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then we are missing our call. For we are indeed called to come together, to be in fellowship, to worship God, to learn, study, pray, all of those things, but then go out into the world. That's what Jesus modeled with his disciples. He walked with them for his time, gave them everything that they needed, and then sent them out to go proclaim and live as one who believes. And it's hard. I know it's easier said than done. But what does that look like, preacher? You're going to have to say Jesus Christ in public? I wholeheartedly believe that God puts in our paths on a regular basis, if not daily, opportunities to live our faith. It doesn't necessarily mean you're on the street corner calling for the repentance of all sinners, but it could knock yourself out. It could just be the worker two cubicles over. It could be the family next door that you know is struggling. It could be those who have lost their jobs or are struggling with illness or COVID or cancer. There's so much in our world that is trying and difficult that if we just keep comfort and joy that we have been given in Christ to ourselves, it seems kind of selfish. Our call is, in this case, to do as the military does. They learn, they think, they fellowship, they study, they train, they have boot camp but then they go out to do their jobs. And we have jobs both here and out there, just as they did. Another thing is that there's both individual opportunities to serve, but it's seen as being a part of the bigger whole. Yes, we, we are called to make a decision to follow Christ, However that happens, maybe there's a moment where you felt like you were converted and brought. Maybe over your life you look back and you think, how could any of that happen without God leading me and guiding me and holding me like the footprints poem in the sand? However you feel God has been present, when or however you made your decision to come and be with Christ and to be a disciple, 
There's that individual part. We are called to pray. We are called to study, both in groups, but also by ourselves. But we know that it's not just a personal relationship with Christ that we are called to, but one of being a part of the body of Christ. Paul in his letters was all about the community. I think he would never have understood that being baptized means you you come into the church and then maybe we don't see you again. Same with confirmation. You are confirmed into a family. You are baptized into a family. And when we see our walk and journey with Christ as a disciple, just as something that's 100%, just about our one-on-one with Jesus, again, we are missing the benefits, the challenges, the joys of being a part of not only a church family, but the larger body of Christ. What can we do together better or more efficiently or on a larger scale than we can do as individuals? Almost everything. And as a part of a church family, we laugh together, we cry together, we share everything together and our lives. Part of laying that your life down for someone else isn't necessarily you being called to die for others. Maybe it will be. But when we are a part of a church family, we open our lives to others as they open their lives to us. And the hope is we can get deeper than just the smile on Sunday morning. Hello, my life is perfect. Check my Facebook. I've been traveling. My kids are beautiful, smart, and perfect. Everything's fine. I hope nobody else has problems because that's not why we're here. All about that facade. I know, and sometimes you just don't have time on Sunday mornings to walk up to somebody and say, let me tell you the awful state I'm in, friend. But we are called to walk this journey together, and it's a joy. I just look around this room, and I see all the gifts, all of the love, all the commitment, all the passion, all the doubts, all the fears, all the faith. And you look at the history of this church and all those saints who have come before us and all of you, the saints now, to see that we have been called to walk this journey together, given one another and this church as gifts and the larger body of Christ. The military gets that. They have their individual jobs. They've got to do their thing, got to pull their weight because it affects the greater good. And if they're not doing their part, then the larger group doesn't function as well. Most organizations are like that, and it's certainly no different in the church. We can't be secret Christians in the world. There's that old joke about the preacher who's shaking hands after worship, and somebody comes by he doesn't see very often. And he says, pulls him aside and says, hey, you know, you're in the army of the Lord. And the man says, I, I am in the army of the Lord, preacher. He says, then why do I only see you at Christmas and Easter? He says, because I'm in the secret service. <laughs> we can't hide who we are when we leave. We shouldn't. Think about wearing a uniform as our military does. 
We see all the time as Columbus is blessed to have Fort Benning and our military families and soldiers here. You see them walking around, you see them with their families, you see them out on the weekends. We know who they are because they're wearing a uniform. What if we had a Christian uniform? Ooh, scary. One Lent several years ago, my former church, I decided as a Lenten discipline, I would wear a collar every day for those six weeks, except for Sundays. There would be no doubt that I was a Christian of some sort, a Christian leader of some sort, and what that collar represented. I found myself being nicer to people. I found myself driving more within the speed limit so I wouldn't cut anybody off and they would say, oh, you're that preacher, how dare you? But it does something internally to know that you are being identified and somewhat judged as a Christian, even without interaction. It also yielded some fascinating conversations with clerks, with wait people in restaurants, a variety of folks who said, are you, you some kind of priest or something? I said, well, yeah, I'm a Presbyterian minister. It's okay for us to wear, we can wear collars, it's all right. There's no collar regulation committee yet. But it generated conversation in a variety of ways. And in some ways it invited people. In some ways people looked with disdain. And you could see the hurt in their eyes from something that they either didn't understand, they wanted to understand, or maybe they had been church burned, or maybe it was pure judgment on the ignorance of a Christian follower. I would love for you all to have those same experiences. To know that on a daily basis as a Christian, folks can look and see. And so maybe you do pick up your game a little bit because how we treat people matters. And especially when they know that you are claiming to be a Christian, maybe you take that a little more seriously when you can't hide like our military in their uniforms, unless they want to hide, in which case you'll never know they're there. So think about that when you step out. How can we not just hide and blend in? We're not called to be in the secret service equivalent of the body of Christ, because there isn't such. And keep your eyes open for those opportunities that God is placing should you look should you listen? Should you heed the call and the people and the events that God is placing in front of you? We are called to open our lives and yes, lay them down for one another in this room, but also in the world. We are called to claim the power that God has given us to stand on that, not be afraid of it, and cower in fear because someone might know that we're a Christian and we might have to say Jesus Christ in public because too many people think that that's exclusionary when we know it is not. It's time for us to stand firm, to not just keep our faith in our mind, but to stand and then to go and act in response 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the love and joy and call and discipleship and healing that it brings. So today we are thankful for our veterans who have and are giving of themselves for ourselves and for the world. And Christ is calling us to also be empowered by God's spirit to go from this place and do our jobs as a larger part of the body of Christ. So let us claim that power and go. Hallelujah. Amen.